that that's not why I feel like I have wealth, Caleb. I feel like I have wealth because of the fact that I have these people around me that if I need something, that they will come help me. So, <laughs> so I would, I would, sorry. <laughs> so I would say thank you. That, that's what I do in that, in that last conversation. This is Better Well with Caleb Williams. The one and only. Welcome to the show, man. I can't believe I'm here. So I wrote a book specifically so I could get here on this show. And now, Caleb, I'm here. So I don't need to ever write in our book again because my career is over. You know how they say go out on top? This right. is it. So right. well, I'm announcing I hope you my don't retirement. Go out. I, like whatever that word means, I hope that doesn't happen after this podcast. Um, <laughs> I want to just, I want to paint the picture a little bit because uh, if you know anything about the financial world, uh, especially what, as it relates to podcasts, there's this show called Stacking Benjamins. And I want to get the backstory of how that came about, but it's a big deal. And I remember running into you, ironically, in the city that you're in right now, Austin, Texas. That's, that's right. Yeah. And it was just, it was kind of surreal because, you know, you're really not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, but in like the fin, fin, fintech world, you're like, you're kind of a celebrity. Like you can, you, you probably like the, everybody knows you at this conference. And so we, we chatted a little bit, didn't think much of it other than like, man, like I hope when I'm your age, I'm, I'm that cool. Started a friendship. I had the opportunity to, to come on your show, which I'm forever grateful for. And when you came out with your, your book that I want our whole audience to support you and buy it and, and, you know, review it on Amazon or wherever you want them to review it. I, that really helps an author. And so this is a grateful, and I'm, I know that this is going to be unlike any other podcast that I do. And so the rules are out. I, I <laughs> literally like, bar high. I do hope we sell some books, high. but the bar is not high right now. Um, so all in all, man, how are you doing? How are you holding up? And then I want to know how you got into becoming one of the, the faces of the, the financial world as it relates to podcasting, because um, you don't, if you've met, if, if you met you on the street, people wouldn't be like, oh yeah, this guy does a financial podcast. Like that's, you don't necessarily like give the financial vibes. Um, no, I give more of an MMA vibe. Yeah. Like you think MMA cause I'm pretty ripped. That's, it's, that's it's, what you think. That's exactly yeah. what everyone was thinking when they're watching this. Yeah. Well, thanks man. Thanks for all those kind words. And I, um, and I'm, I'm doing well. I'm starting a 40 city book tour as we're recording this. I'm on city number two tonight, Austin, Texas. So one down, 39 to go, and uh, we're kind of learning as we go. But you know what, Micah, th there's this great phrase. Th th there's actually two great phrases. I, uh, I love mantras, and I know you do too. Um, love like just reminding yourself. You put these things on repeat every time you start to doubt yourself. And there's two of them. And one of them, I don't have the exact quote, but it's Michelangelo quote where he says, you know, the problem is not setting... The, the, the bar the bar too high and not getting it, setting it too low and easily getting it. And so we started this city tour. We could have gone to three cities, five cities, seven cities, but we set it at 40 and everybody questioned my sanity. And lately I've been questioning my own sanity, but I'll tell you, I love it. Like I seriously love it. I love it and hate it at the same time, but I know when I get done with it, we'll be so much stronger. And hopefully, and the big thing is, you know, shows like yours and mine, they're meant to introduce more people to the community. Yeah. I mean, our goal is really to, to be on the front end and introduce people. My goal is to introduce people to cool people like you, which is why I was so glad you came on the show. And um, if I can do that, 
like last night we had so many people that had that don't listen to any other podcast yet except ours. Oh. And that's awesome because as you know, I don't want to be the last word in personal finance. I want to be the first word. Yeah, and great. so if we can be an airport and curate good people, like that's that's good. So yeah, I'm holding up well. We'll see. Talk to me in like three or four days. We'll see after I've after I finish Texas. We've got Austin tonight, Houston tomorrow, then I fly to uh, San Francisco for an event. I've got a one day break there before San Francisco, but then I go San Francisco, San Diego and LA three cities in four days. And then, uh, Portland the next night, Seattle, the next night, then we take a break, uh, as I fly to Miami and then we start the East coast. So it's incredible. Um, where, where can my listeners go to support what you're doing? And they might be listening and they might yeah. be in a city. Where can they go and get more info on that? Well, well, and I'll even tell you, Caleb, don't do it to, to support me. Our goal is to get in these towns. I really want to get as many money nerds together, potential money nerds together, because we often feel like the only place we can get support is in in this online community. Yep. And we don't even know how many people there are. Like so many people that were there last night, I saw meeting new people. That's fantastic. Like if you meet your neighbor and they're into the same stuff too, like we start building these little villages of people, that's a pretty powerful thing. So don't do it for me come out and meet other people to make your own money game stronger, but go to stackingbenjamins.com slash stacked. And you'll see, if you scroll down, you'll see the whole 40 cities. And the, as we get homes, as we're talking right now, we're within probably two hours having Madison, Wisconsin, uh, our home there. Um, so we're later on the tour. I'll have Omaha in the next couple of days to Omaha, Nebraska. Oh. Uh, but anyway, stackybenjamins.com slash stacked and then sign up. We have a free event, right? So you can sign up and just tell us we're coming because we're generally trying to meet. Sometimes we're at bookstores and sometimes we're at uh, we're at libraries, but we're at a lot of microbreweries and these microbrewers. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> These microbrewers want to need to know how many people they have. So if, if you're okay. coming, if you if you can tell us you're coming, if you can't, that's fine. Just show up. Do you want to make it 41 stops? Because uh, <laughs> an hour and a half north of Madison, there's a there's a city called Stevens Point. It's where I went to school, and uh, oh. I, could, I could line up I could line up some connections. But uh, <laughs> but I also I could I'll probably also convince them to drive an hour and a half to Madison. So, but just, we've just had, throwing that out there. We've had so many, it's so beautiful up there. It's gotta be beautiful. Yeah. I would think, especially in the fall, but we, um, yeah, it's sad because even though we peeled off 40 cities, people are like, why aren't you coming to Boise? Why aren't you coming to Nashville? Why aren't yeah, you coming wow. to Huntsville, Alabama? Like these cool towns I can't, yeah. can't get to. And it's so frustrating. Yeah. Wow. So overall, I want to take it 10 steps back. You have a ton of energy, the passion's there love the community. What's the point? Like, what's the point? Because the idea for our company is intentional living. Like that becomes the metric that is if, if families and people are not able to live more intentionally, we're just doing our thing. We're making some money and we're going to die someday. And it's not really going to matter. What is yeah. your why behind this book, behind the movement, behind why you're still doing this? But that, and that's why I think Caleb, you and I align so much because my, my goal was really crystallized when I read last year, this phenomenal report. Like I'd always, I'd always had this goal, but it was very crystallized when I read a report by a group called nonfiction and uh, anybody can look it up online. Just look for nonfiction It's called the secret financial lives of Americans. And it goes through all these horrible statistics that people share anonymously about what they think about their money that they don't tell other people. Like as an example, 10% of people say that they've stolen, not 
because they are a thief, but because they had no other recourse other than to steal. One out of 10, it's a big, big, big number. You know, 330 million people in the United States, we got 33 million thieves around us. And not because they want to steal, but because they felt like they needed to. And by the way, I was there. Like I remember exactly when I stole and who I stole from way back when I was living, not even paycheck to paycheck was worse than that. Um, people that have said that they would have sex for money, people that, that, that eat out of, have eaten out of dumpsters or eaten food out of the refrigerator stole, you know, that we, there's the joke at work that somebody steals the food. Well, that person is somebody that really needs help. But the biggest statistic of all, the one that rang true to me was this one of all the people in the United States. 150 million people report that they've cried about their money, that they've cried about it. And you'd think that that's people like I was in the early 90s where they weren't sure where the next paycheck was going to come from and the next meal was going to come from. While that is the case, and that's a higher percentage, get this, nearly one in two of the people that make over $250,000 a year say that they have cried about their money. So it isn't just about paycheck to paycheck. It's, to use your word, intentionality. My word has always been, there's a difference between what we spend money on and what our values are. And we know that deep down, like we totally know that. Yep. And, and so my, my goal is to make this easier for people because the frustration that you'll see in the report, most people say there's not enough information out there and the report calls it BS and I call it BS. And so do you. So what's the issue? I've been doing this, this podcast for 10 years. I was a financial planner for 16, two years in the transition. I was in financial media before that, before the podcast. You know what? So I've talked to a lot of people. I feel like us money nerds, we want to have these really deep conversations. And you and I know we have to have those, but we can't get there right away. The other frustration is people that don't know money, they think that they're shortcuts, they're secrets. Yeah. Like when I was first attracted in the 80s to the money game, I loved watching these people on TV that knew like the magics of a good budget or how to go to a grocery store and spend less money or how to get a better deal on your utility bills. And, you know, and none of these are really secrets. They, they seem like these little magic tricks, but that initially attracted me to all this stuff. But the other thing that attracted me was like the old movie Wall Street. Don't get me wrong, I'm not going to jail. But these people living on yachts and it looked like you could have something yeah. for nothing, right? You can yeah. get rich in a hurry. I feel like, and the report points to this, that there's a lot of people that think that there's shortcuts. And so the questions I get from people that should be building a foundation, I get questions about how do I get there quicker? Yeah. What's hot? What's now? And I'll tell you, let me tell you what people aren't crying about because you and I know what's hot. What's hot right now in the world is that central bank digital currency is going to emerge probably as a big thing as governments get involved in crypto, right? Mm -hmm. That is the hot thing right now. Central bank digital, people aren't crying over central bank digital crypto. By the way, people also are not crying about uh, buying an 8-bit picture of a tree right. as an NFT for a hundred grand. They're not crying about that. They're also not crying about some of the possible law changes like, will the mega backdoor Roth IRA be gone, right? Mm -hmm. They're not crying about that. They're crying because their values and their money don't mix and they don't have that foundation. So my to answer your question the longest way possible <laughs> the, the the my whole reason for being is to try to show people that this is easy and it's fun and to give you surround sound 
I get one criticism all the time. People go through my podcast and my book and they look for the negative reviews. The negative reviews always are around one thing and it's always from money nerds. The negative reviews are, I'm not worried about efficacy. They don't say that this way. I'm not worried about more hot tips per second. I'm not trying to give you these aha moments every second. I'm just trying to envelop you in surround sound with people who are fun, money topics that are fun, so that you realize the water's warm. And then later on, you'll have those big aha moments. You might not have them with me, but I'm going to lead you to them. It just You said this early on, you want to be the first voice, but not necessarily the last voice. Absolutely. And if you look at our world right now, and this, this report, I, I can't wait to read it. It just, it just is crying for help. It's like we live in a country that needs a different perspective change. And one of the reasons that makes you so articulate is you literally identified some of the two most important issues, in my opinion. It's, it's values. And are you internally motivated or externally motivated? And I think if we, if we look at money decisions that people make, they're making decisions based on things that they don't value, but other people, they think yeah. they value, and they're externally like motivated for the wrong reason. And so it's so funny because we always talk about the heart is the real issue. So I, so one of my questions that you can start thinking about is how do you have the values conversation? Um, in, in our workshop, well, the first thing that we do is help people craft a value statement, a why statement, and make that the metric because you're totally right. Your life becomes, there's meaning to why you do this. And if, yeah. if you don't, it's just like, oh, retire, well, have you ever looked at the definition of retire? Like, let's start changing our language because I don't want to be the horse that retires kind of deal. So that's number one. Number two is the get rich quick whole scheme. And it's so interesting to me about people that are literally in it for the quick buck. And I, I hope for their own sanity that they don't make money in doing that because what talk about unfulfillment. And we yeah. talk about money yeah. follows value. And it is one of the most fulfilling things to be investing into working and to be living a life of value and having that realized and, and money should follow that. But making money a, be a quick buck, it's like we've all seen the people that have gone up and down and, and there's, there's meaningless to their yeah. life because they're just it's all about the scheme to put money back in their pocket, but they don't have the appreciation that money is literally just currency or a debt for value. And so I, you're getting me going, but I just want to let you know I appreciate well, that. Well, Caleb, to your point, I mean, look at so social media, right? Yeah. Social media is not, hey, I put $25 into my emergency fund to get, to get my foundation yeah. in place. It's always... I bought this incredibly beautiful piece of real estate, which is why, which is one of the reasons I think that the real estate market's so hot is because we have this thing that shows us beautiful pictures all the time. And I, we see our friends all buying real estate. And by the way, I'm not saying real estate's bad when I say this. I'm just saying, why is real estate lately beat the pants off the stock market? And I think it's partly social media and us going, dude, look at how much money I'm making doing this thing. And by the way, you know, these TV shows don't help that show that with just a few hundred bucks, I can redo this kitchen, which you and I know is not true, that it costs a hell of a lot more than the property brothers are doing it for, even though I love that show. It's fun yeah. to watch. But, it, but, but it's not reality. And I think too many people think that's real. And then what do we see too? People that don't want to get the emergency fund in place, but they do want to know what crypto is all about. Why do you yeah. want to know what crypto is all about? You don't want to know what your emergency fund is. You know why? Because you think crypto is the lottery. And don't right. get me wrong. I'm not saying crypto is bad either. Crypto is right. fine. Crypto is right. great. But it's not the lottery. And if you treat it like that, you're you're in big trouble. Yep. Yeah. And, and bad things happen when we divorce ourselves from the value creation or yes. the responsibility of value creation. Um, and it would, if we could teach fundamental 
like how money works, but then tie it to a greater meaning, we would we would see massive change in our country. So when someone says, okay, I love that you guys are so passionate about your values, but I don't know mine. Yeah. Yeah. How do you help someone um, with that? Because I think if you get anything out of this podcast, if you can leave with the framework of how to get that, read, read your book or read any other book and you're going to have a hundred times more success than trying to learn about, you know, investing and not have yes. that deeper reason. Well, and it's funny because I believe what I'm about to tell you will lead you to better investment decisions. Because what I realized when I was a financial planner is that having that values conversation, Caleb, to your point, is so hard. It's so flipping hard. So instead, what we do is this. A lot of people right now, we're well into the year. Like of all of your listeners, Caleb, there's probably three that still are working on their New Year's resolutions, right? The New Year's resolutions are long gone. And why is that? It's because we do all, I believe it's because we do all these in a vacuum. Like I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And what happens? Real life takes over and all of a sudden they're gone. So instead, what I like is this thing that I learned when I was a financial planner called timelining your goals. And when you timeline it, the very first thing about timelining is you're making it visual and our subconscious brain works works in pictures. It doesn't work in words. Like we have to learn words as a baby, but we're born with these pictures, right? Our eyes open and all of a sudden we see these people around us and the things around us. So because our brain thinks that way, we want to open up the subconscious mind. So what you do, just take out a regular piece of printer paper, do it landscape style. And on one side, make yourself a stick figure. And anybody, you know, if you're married or in a relationship or planning with a partner, put yourself a stick figures and then draw a line, which is the rest of your life. And then on that timeline, list out, put put marks where these big moments are that you want. When do you want to be financially independent? I love your change in the language, right? When do you want to be financially? Uh, Eric Brotman, I don't know if you know Eric, says, let's graduate, not retire. Like, 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 let's just graduate because we got a whole different world we want to live in. So when do I want that? Or when do I want to maybe back down my hours and just work in a job with more flexibility so I can, I can then do more of the things I want to, but maybe still work in a job I find fulfilling, but pays less. If I have kids, do I want to help them with college? If I, maybe I want a second home, whatever that might be, put all of those goals, whatever they are, put them on a timeline. And what happens is a few wonderful things. The first thing is, then I want everybody to take those goals and do a very simple equation. This goal costs X amount of money times Y return to get the goal. And you go, well, how do I get that? Well, every single asset management website, Fidelity, Vanguard, whoever, everybody has these little calculators. Just do a simple calculation. So and to give you an idea, let's say that to reach one of his big goals, Caleb, you need five bucks per month that you've got to save, but that's a great goal five bucks and you need a 9% rate of return to get that goal. Now we can look at those numbers. So the first thing that we look at, and these are the goals individual, by the way, and I'm next going to tell you about putting the goals in relation to each other. Cause I think that's where we really get to the heart of your question about values. But first, what we do is we look at that $5 and let's say Caleb, you don't have five bucks a month. You only have three. Well, I see a lot of people that talk about budgeting, but budgeting without a purpose is pain. It is just pain. Budgeting when you know why you're doing it 
is huge because now, okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and eat at home instead of eating at a restaurant because of the fact that I want to save more money. And guess what? Then I find out I like cooking as well, which is what happened in my life. But that may help you. Maybe driving a less expensive car, maybe changing your cell phone plan. So you do all these things to maybe get the goal. But let's say you can't do that. Maybe the budget's tight and, and, and uh, 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 now we got to look at the rate of return instead. Yeah. Now we look at 9%. And what I find seriously annoying, and I used to go to companies, I went to Chrysler and Microsoft and IBM and uh, Xerox. And I've been to so many companies talking about their back in the day, um, about their, their corporate benefits. Every single one of these companies, Caleb, have a risk analysis. How much risk do you think you can take? And I think this is bizarre. And it drives me crazy because I ask people, how much money did you put into your 401k or your workplace plan? And they're like, well, I put X amount. Well, why'd you decide that? Well, that's, that's because it's what I could afford. And then I'd say, how did you pick these funds? And they go, well, they were the ones that look good. And then I'd ask, where is that going to take you? And they have no idea. Yeah. Like nine out of 10 people have no idea. They're like, oh, I picked it based on my budget based on my risk tolerance, which is risk tolerance thing said, here's a novel concept, do the risk tolerance thing, but do it after you find out how much risk you need to take. Yeah. So if we start off with that 9% and then we look at investments historically that have done 9%, now we can go, you and I have a conversation and say, or you, you do some research and you're like, oh man, that's pretty, 9% is pretty risky. Like stocks over long periods of time have done that, but maybe we back that down to seven because yeah. I want to be conservative. Well, guess what we usually do? We back it down to seven because we don't feel like we like the risk, but we never change anything else. Yeah. But these other things are going to move. So if we move, make it seven, I have to either save more money or I have to change the goal. Yeah. So the cool thing you can see is I now start playing with all these levers, but the, the, the real key, yeah. and this is, this is the heart of your question is, when I have all these goals and I run all those back, now I see what all these goals cost together. And then I go, uh-oh, maybe I can't reach them all. And now we have the values conversation because now it's all these things I care about and which one really is more important to me to hit early, which ones can I push back or which ones can I eliminate altogether? So I believe that by timelining your goals visually, and building milestones toward them, you're more likely to reach them. You're going to have a plan that makes sense. You're going to research fewer investments because yeah. everybody's word. We have FOMO that we're missing out on all these investments. Just research the ones that historically have gotten you to this rate of return you need. And then last, compare them against each other and your values will rise to the top while you're doing that exercise. Well, what I, what I love what you said is we a lot of times have conversations in in a, a vacuum. It's like, how much risk do you want to take? How much rate of return do you want to take? And we don't tie it to anything. And right. it's like, yeah, if I didn't have if I didn't have a reason why I'm investing and the market goes down, I might feel a little bit different than if I have a 15 year goal and I know that this is like this is gonna happen. I'm doubling down. Like it's just that there's so much opportunity to up our game. Um so I'm assuming you're writing this for the consumer, but are you hoping financial advisors can like read this and Learn a thing or two. And like, what's, what's your view on financial advisors? Oh, I have a, you know, at the end of the book, I talk about financial advisors. And my my thought is this. I think there is, and this is this is Joe lighting a torch on a lot of the, the discussions that we have online, because they are also baloney, uh, to put it nicely. The thing about most financial advisor discussions online is the first thing you ask a financial advisor is what do they charge? It's the very first thing you ask them. 
I don't walk into you and I, before we hit record, we're talking about Baskin Robbins. We're just talking about ice cream a little bit. You don't walk into Baskin Robbins and go, how much does it cost? Yeah. What are they going to say? They're going to say, do you want a single cone? Do you want a double cone? Do you want a, do you want a Sunday? Like the first thing I want to know is what I get. Right. And by the way, with an advisor, here's what I want and here's what I don't want. And I'm not even going to talk about CFPs or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I want to surround myself with smart people. I want to be the dumbest person in the room. And I always want to, in my life, I want to be the king. But if if you're listening to this, you might want to be the king, the queen, use your analogy, whatever it is, but you want to stay in charge. You don't want to abdicate the throne, meaning your advisor should make you smarter. Yep. So if you're in a relationship right now with an advisor where you walk in and actually let me, let me give you an analogy here to show you how ridiculous this is. I'm a Detroit guy, Caleb, and I love uh, General Motors. Yeah. Uh, not the best company of all time, but, but my dad worked for GM and I've watched them over the past 30 years just continue to stay relevant and stay in the game. And it's amazing how they've turned this Rust Belt company just to stay there. And man, their, you know, their technology for electric cars is right there with everybody else's. Mary Barra, the, the woman who's the CEO, I think has done a great job. Mary Barra does not come in twice a year to the GM office as the CEO and go, okay, car people, you guys do the car thing in six months from now, you tell me how you did, which is the way most people treat their financial professional, right? Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Two two times a year might be a stretch, but yeah, yeah. Right, hey, how did I do? And then they're upset that they didn't do, what, what, what? It didn't, what? If you have that relationship with your advisor, you either need to redefine the relationship or you need to fire them because Mary goes to all the meetings. Mary reads all the periodicals. Mary belongs to all the groups. Mary does all the stuff on her own, but then she has these smart people around her, Caleb, that she goes, hey, Caleb, I read this. What do you think? And Caleb, by the way, who's hella more smart than than Mary is about his particular department, can then show me how exactly to think about that because A, Caleb knows me, B, Caleb's the expert who's got my back, and C, we've built this relationship together that's based on him teaching me more stuff. So for me, advisor-wise, I do hope advisors uh, that hear this that don't have a collaborative relationship that think that they want to be the magic man or magic woman that makes everything just, hey, hey, there's an advisor specifically in my hometown of Texarkana I'm thinking about right now who talks a great game about being collaborative. And whenever he and I meet for foamy beverages on a Friday, he complains, and I've told him this, by the way, I'm not talking about his back. He complains about collaboration. And I'm like, you know, your clients hire you to argue. Like I hire my advisors to argue. I'm not just going to go, yeah, Caleb, you're the man. I'm going to go, are you sure we should do it that way? Like those, those people are great. So if it's, if it's not collaborative, get rid of them or redefine the relationship. Yeah. So, so many things that you said there, my eyes were open because I got into space in a unique way. And I was like, oh, we're just glorified people to sell products. Like, welcome to the financial service space. And I'm like, okay, it just didn't sit well. I'm like, what in the world? Like, I don't know that much about money, but I know that like, why when you're calling me with the annuity of the month or like the investment or the mutual fund of the day, it's like, there's some red flags there, but like, welcome to our space. And I think that was, I think that's one thing that we can resonate with. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, taking a fiduciary test is a step, but it's not, it doesn't make you all of a sudden like this golden, golden, 
person as it relates to your advice. So it's just one of those things where it's like, I love what you're saying because the real issue is people, again, are divorcing themselves from actually getting results. And so they're just like, they don't really want to take responsibility and we love playing the blame game. So it's like, oh, Joe, Joe sucks, you know? And it's like, it's, it's Joe's fault that I'm broke. That's right. It's not mine. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's just one of those things that I've observed. And we, it's so interesting because I didn't, I didn't tee this up for you to give that answer, but like we, for better or worse, are very non-traditional, but we will not be the quote unquote advisor and babysit your money. We'll actually say that like, we're not money babysitters. We'll be along with you, but like we, we have a fiduciary, we do investment advice, but like, we don't even want to give investment advice or anything we want to like show you options and everything has a pro and a con and we actually uh, another conversation we can show you our cash flow ratio model which has nothing to do with products it just on a two-line graph shows you exactly where you are and based on what you're saying this is where you're going to be and when the when one line is not on the green line that means there's there's conversations that need to happen yeah do all that number one because i think compliance is going to get interesting i think a lot of people are going to get in trouble i think a lot of people are are naive and we we want to be the company that tells you exactly this is what you're saying joe but like i'm not going to say buy this mutual fund or buy this insurance policy or buy this annuity because those products are not going to help you either there's a there's a deeper route so Anything else yes. you want to say before we get into your book? Like this is like start the worst with, podcast for book sales, you know? <laughs> no, actually, you know what's funny? Timelining is where we start the book. Amazing. So that's great. And then and then later in the book, we talk about, uh, and we dig in deeper on advisors, but that's generally an overview of what you'll find in the hiring advisors chapter, which is near the end of the book. Because the book starts off very foundationally and it ends with some pretty deep stuff like efficient frontier and tax planning and hiring advisors won't bleed you dry, having the, a better relationship, those much deeper, deeper things. Cool. So you this this book is divided up into four, four parts. It, overall, I'm, I'm assuming just like Eric's book, it's kind of like starting with the basics. Yeah. And then and then compounding anything if you had to rewrite this book anything that you would have changed or you like the four part nature of the book. I think I thought I thought in the introduction I kind of explained uh where we were headed. The thing that I would make clearer is that the book is not meant to be read end to end. Yeah. Um and to tell you how that how it works, I really should have told the story of how I came up with the book because I think it illustrates how to really read this book. But that answer is I was, I had written a book and it took me 10 years to to write it. And I got done with it. I handed it to Cheryl, my spouse. And I'd say about 18 minutes later, she handed back like this sucks. And it did. It it stopped, start, stop, start. It was way too serious. It was not me. Yeah. It was, it was kind of the old financial advisor, Joe. And I tried to keep that tone and it just wasn't great. So, uh, but I knew that there were a lot of things in that. There were a lot of topics. The topics weren't bad and the ideas weren't bad, but the delivery was horrible. So I was trying to think about how to frame this stuff. So it's more of an introductory model like we have on the podcast. And I was in Portland, Oregon, and there's this wonderful bookstore called Powell's, which is, have you been to Powell's? No. Oh, it's a block long. And, and, and to think about Powell's, it didn't start off as a block long. I'm guessing just because of the way that it looks on the inside, it looks like they owned a little bookstore and as the business next to them went under, they bought out that business and blew out the wall because like the floors don't match up. Like the, like the bookstore in some places is three stories tall and some it's two. And it's just because this store owner had added his two stories. So there's all these weird stairways that seem like they're going nowhere. It's like one of those MC Escher uh, things with all the stairs going everywhere, the, those pictures. But 
I like wandering around these places. I love bookstores because you get these great ideas as I go through things that have nothing to do with our subject matter of finance. I'll go through the photography session. I'll go through the fiction area, science fiction. I'll walk through, I'll walk through everywhere. Well, as you can believe, because you know me a little bit, I end up at the kids section. <laughs> and so, so I find this book that I had when I was in fourth grade called the Hardy Boys Detective Manual. Did you, have you ever read the I, Hardy Boys Detective I've Manual? I've read two Hardy Boys books. And so I can relate a little bit. Yes. <laughs> the Detective Manual is not a Hardy Boys story. It's written with the help of a real live FBI agent. They tell you this written with the help of an FBI agent, and they tell you everything it takes to be a detective, written at the fourth grade level. And my brother and I, man, we carried this thing everywhere. And like on a muddy day, my dad would leave for work at General Motors, and we'd run out and we'd look at the tire tracks, like it told us in the book to analyze and be able to follow the tire tracks so we know what you know my dad, the perpetrator, was doing. And then I don't know what he did wrong, but hey, we're doing that. My mom, my mom would touch door handles and we'd be over there minutes, seconds later with tape and we'd tape the door handle so that we can get her fingerprints. Like we loved this book. It was fantastic. And I thought, what if there was kind of a little bit campy book that had that same feeling, but I still didn't. Have, so I had the germ of kind of the, the feel of the book, but not the layout. Well, then we flew home and I was living in Detroit at the time and uh, open up, open up our house. And my mom has a key to our house. And I, Caleb, I was 50 years old when, when I started writing this, when this project started coming together. And uh, my mom had finally at 50 left, giving me all the crap in the attic that she didn't think she could trust me with until 50, like my little league pictures, the, uh, the, the father, son, like sixth place bowling trophy from the bowling invitational. But in there was the Cub Scout wolf guide, which I had when I was in Cub Scouts. And I took this thing out. I hadn't looked at this in forever. And what I realized looking through it was you and I talk a lot about gamification and gamification takes these concepts that can seem really overwhelming. And if you turn into a game, number one, you don't worry about failure anymore. You just, cause it's a game. Who cares if I fail? Yeah. So you take failure away. And the second thing, you're just trying to level up a little bit and get better and better. And so I realized the Cub Scouts were doing gamification way before all these apps that do great jobs with gamification now, because the Cub Scouts start off with easy achievements. They're not chapters in the Cub Scout Wolf Guide, they're achievements. They start off with easy achievements and they get harder as you go, building on that foundational knowledge. They tell you things you're going to need at the top. They succinctly tell you how to get them. You have to check a bunch of boxes to show proficiency by actually doing it. Love that. And then there's a place for your mom to sign at the end of every chapter, at the end of, and then you get your badge. So as people will see in the book, stacked is laid out that way. You start every chapter with things you need. Ours might be a little BS. Our things you need might not be truthful, but we're just having fun. But then we do dive in in a pretty serious, but fun, laid back, conversational manner um, and a competent way about what you're going to need to do to get this next level. And then at the bottom, you check the boxes to see you got it. And then we have badges at the end of every chapter that you can print off and uh, put on your refrigerator after your mom signs it. So. That's that's incredible. I I love how you create this this gamification and it's and it's fun because to be honest, it's like you and I both could say like, does the world really need another financial book? Yeah, and yeah, and I love I love that you're putting your twist on it. Um, we're gonna go through this fast because I don't know if you have a hard stop at the hour, but I I want to get four like I'm gonna go through each part 
And I would just yeah. love a two minute summary cool. of like, here's some of the key, key things from this part. Um, yeah. And then I want hard, hard call to action of where, where our audience can, can get this book for themselves for, for their family. And then it's a side benefit to benefit you. But awesome. it's one of those things where I, you're, you're on the show for a reason. I, I want to support what you're doing because I see the passion that you have in your life. And I just, I want that to compound. And so I'm just entertaining me, dude. <laughs> Part one, we talked a little bit about it. Is there anything else as it relates to stacking your first Benjamin that's like yeah. highlightable or something that should be mentioned? Yeah. Big thing is after you timeline your goals and you're looking at that budget is remember the best budgets are around the conversations that you have. So it's not about the app. It's not about Love the that. spreadsheet. It's about the conversations you have. Cheryl and I, as a starter, and even if you're single, I would do this. Set 20 minutes at the same time every week and uh, look at your it's just two basic things. Look at how you spent money the week before. Look at how you're going to spend money the next week and stop there. Your subconscious mind will take it from there because now your subconscious mind will go. And by the way, Cheryl and I try to keep it fun. So what we do is depending on the time of day, because we do have to move my ours around because we're busy people. We tried to have it at the same time. Now we, we schedule the next one at the one before we either have it with pancakes or wine, depending on the time of day. And at the 20 minute mark, stop, no matter where you're at, stop. Cause it's got to stay fun or you're not going to keep doing it. That's in step one. Yeah. We say when you track it, you control it. And, and that's the whole idea is like, you don't have to fix it. As long as you're self-aware yourself yes. on, on a problem or an opportunity, you're, you're going to start seeing that car over and over and over again. And it, the car was always there. It's just like, you're having that, those conversations. Yep. I'm curious about your, um, increasing income. I love that you have this in here. And I think it's, it's one of those expanding conversations. What is the best way to increase your income? Well, there's actually two. The first one is studies show that your boss at work wants to give you a raise. You just haven't asked or you haven't asked in the right way. Realize that inflation, the inflation rate now is at 7.5%. So if you've even gotten a 7.5% raise this year, you are falling behind. You're not staying even. You are falling behind. You're, you're getting 7.5% less money. So you need a raise right now. So ask your boss. The best tip in the book about asking your boss for a raise is this. Every conversation is a cube. The second, and just by the way, Caleb, you phrase questions. You already do this. I don't know if you know the cube or not, but the cube is there's a cube sitting between us. The way to do well in an, any negotiation is to look at the other side of the cube, look at the cube from your boss's point of view right. and, and don't solve your problems. Try to solve your boss's problems. And once you do that, you can ask. The second thing is, you know, uh, Wes Moss, who's a fantastic, he's, a, he's at a talk radio show longer than Dave Ramsey has. He's on Atlanta radio. Wes is a fantastic guy. Wes just wrote a great book called What the Happiest Retirees Know. Do you know that the average retiree who's very successful has five different streams of income? So developing other streams of income creating other ways of making money so that you're not relied on one is the second thing. So I prefer, and I go into this, the sharing economy is a lie. It is working for people in Silicon Valley. And if you're going to, if you're going to uh, just pay off uh, holiday credit card debt, driving Uber is fine. But people like Dr. Juliet Shore and people can look her up have proven that unless you're a math wizard, you're usually being taken advantage of when you're working for the quote sharing economy. There isn't sharing, they're taking from you. So doing something better, like building your own website, your Etsy store, whatever it might be, is a better way to go. I agree. And I also think if you're going to ask for a raise, seeking first to understand yeah. where the other person's coming from. And remember, 
people like I want to pay everyone a ton of money and we just need to realize that in the value and that needs to be quantified. And I think if you can be the type of person that can um, take emotion out of it and say, what would be the value for X, Y, or Z result? And then if you can do that, it's like, it shouldn't be, that's how we can start expanding. So I love that you mentioned that. And I also think getting a side gig is a no brainer as well, or, or websites. There's so many opportunities. to make. Yes. Absolutely. And just one more thing on that, because I'm glad you brought that up. Seek first to understand. You know, big thing to understand, you may not know this, but your boss might not be the decision maker. And it actually makes it easier this way. And it's less confrontational. If you realize you're just trying to fill your boss with as many things to take to their boss as possible. So realize that there might be more going on and you're just giving them ammunition so that the ammunition's a bad term, but you know what I mean? Give yep. them a, give them enough cool stuff about you that they go to their boss as your advocate. What is your one-on-one when it comes to credit and debt? Um, I have my opinions, but I might, I might re- remain quiet during this. The key is to understand and have respect for a dollar. And early in my life, I did not. I had lots of debt and I didn't have respect for the dollar. And I didn't understand the math that I was being taken advantage of. Debt debt can be useful. I use credit cards actively now. I will employ leverage now sometimes in my investments. But I would encourage you first to not dig yourself a hole. Cause what yeah, I did was I, I dug a hole and I kept digging. So get respect for cash first. And then if you're going to move into leverage, that's fine. How would you identify good debt versus bad debt? Cause I, I a hundred percent agree. I'm actually ironically yeah. debt free right now, but yeah. it's not, it's not out of like, because I think that's smart. It's just, it's just the choices that I've made up until this point, but I'm a huge fan of people identifying good debt. And we, yeah. as a practice utilize debt, if it helps them be more efficient, but what I yeah. found is majority of people don't have a framework. It all is based on feeling. Do you have any tips on how to analyze good debt, bad debt, and instead of doing the shotgun approach, how to pay that off more strategically? The uh, We do talk about debt snowball versus debt avalanche. Uh, I like the snowball for most people because we need those wins. We need that hit of, hey, I achieved a goal. Uh, because the reason that most people fail is not because we didn't do it efficiently. It's because we blow up our own goal, right? Okay. Um, the big thing about debt for me is that it, it, when it comes to paying off debt is I believe, and now we're into semantics, by the way, you phrase it a different way than I do. I believe all debt is bad debt. Every piece of debt is bad debt, which puts the fear in you, right? Because yeah. when you're in debt, you're, you're an asset on somebody else's spreadsheet, <laughs> right? And I don't like being asked on somebody else's spreadsheet. So my goal is to be the CFO of my company. And let me give you an example, 30 year and 15 year loans. The average person out there will choose between those. A lot of people go, well, I'll take a 15 versus a 30. Let's say the interest rates at this particular time are very close to the same. Sometimes there's a wide margin between them. Sometimes they're close. They'll take out a 15 year. And I would ask them why I go, why would you take out a 15 versus a 30? And they go, well, cause I don't want to debt for 30 years. A CFO does not go to their bank and go, hey, 15 year versus 30. Well, I don't want this company to be in debt for 15. You know what they do? The CFO of a company takes the bank for the best terms and interest rate they can get. And then they create a payoff structure that matches their goals, which is completely different. So as an example, and some people can't do this, but if you can, why wouldn't you take out a 30 and pay it off in 10. Because if you get a disability, let's say you get disabled, now I have flexibility where I don't have this huge payment, I might not lose my house. And I realize some people need a bank to hold them hostage, you know, to make sure that they do the right thing. But so 
I think all debt is bad. And I think we need to be a CFO though, and use debt appropriately like a CFO will, where strategically it helps me get ahead faster. I, I respect that answer. We'll have, have you back on and the whole theme will be debt because I, I have some thoughts. It's, it's semantics. It really is not a, it's not going to yes. make or break. Um, yeah. All right. So part two, building and um, building and stacking your Benjamins. Like let's talk about, okay, you have the basics. I love that. Now what's, what's part two? What are the highlight highlighted concepts that, that we should be? Yes. Aware of? Yeah. Highlight thing is get invested earlier rather than later. This is the big thing. Do not wait until you have your emergency fund in place until you, you have your debt paid off. Uh, uh, as an example, for people that are listening and not watching this, this piece of paper, this piece of paper right here, I just have a regular piece of paper. I'll shake it for people listening. If you fold this one time, that's a doubling, right? And so we double our money and then we fold it again. Then we double our money again. You know, if you get an 8% rate of return, there's rule called the rule of 72 and you take 72, take the interest rate you think you're going to get divided into 72 tells you how many years it's going to take your money to double. So if it's an 8% rate of return into 72, that means every nine years, you're going to fold the paper, right? If you fold this paper 50 times, it stretches to the sun. It just takes 50 folds of that one paper. So if I can find a way to double that, 50 times, it will go from here to the sun. Think about how much money that is. So th- so I get frustrated when people just look at the next goal. They look at just yeah, debt payoff yeah. or they look at just build the emergency fund. Invest sooner so that you get more doubles because the most important double that we all need is the last one. That's what we need. I, I love it. I've never heard that example before. So I love that. Damn. 50, 50 times doubling, we, we can get to the sun. Isn't that crazy? It's wild. Yeah. It's wild. Um, okay, so part three, you, you, and I'm, I'm actually going to read this because it's kind of like it's totally your personality. It's holding on to Benjamins without burying it in the backyard. <laughs> yeah, this is all about risk management. And the biggest thing about risk management is stop thinking about what insurances should I buy. Stop. Yeah. Instead, think what are my risks and what's the best way to control those? I love and it. while insurance then is a great thing, now insurance is just a tool and I'm not living the 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 in, in the insurance company's backyard. Don't get me wrong, I'm still going to use insurance companies yeah. in a lot of cases, but I'm going to make better decisions. And your biggest line of defense, your biggest line of defense is that emergency fund. It drives me crazy when people okay. say, my emergency fund only owns only gets half a percent and inflation now seven and a half. So I'm losing lots of money. The ROI, let's be clear. The ROI in your emergency fund is not the half a percent you're getting at the bank. It's the fact that you can avoid short-term disability coverage. It's the fact that you can raise your deductibles on your homeowners, your renter's insurance, or your, your car insurance. You can stay in the stock market more aggressively if that's what you're doing uh, uh, without having to panic. You can have your real estate empire without panicking. You can do all the, that's your ROI. It is nothing to do with these baloney arguments I see online about, well, it doesn't pay anything. So I'll just, I'll just yep. use my credit card if I get in trouble. The psychology of money, that book yeah. articulates this, like what is the ROI of having access to capital? Unbelievably well. And I hundred percent agree. And I'm a big, big fan of emergency fund. I'm a, I'm, I can't tell you how many friends I have that are entrepreneurs that think like, oh, my money's burning a hole in my pocket. So I'm just going to like invest in things that are not liquid and then their business doesn't perform at the 100% growth rate that they were expecting and then they're out of business. And I'm like, man, like 
I just, I want people to get that. I love investing. I, my risk tolerance is pretty high and you would be shocked. You'd be shocked how much cash that we're sitting on and have cash equivalents because we're running a business and I have a more, I have a moral obligation to make sure that I don't gamble with someone's, you know, three weeks paycheck from now paycheck. with their livelihood. Yeah. It's just one of those things. It's like when, when the pandemic hit, when everyone's freaking out, we, we actually made some investments in people that are paying dividends. What's the ROI of having capital then? Like, so I, I'm sorry, you you, uh, you got me going, but I, I love that you. Sh- I'm sharing that because um, a lot of insurance. Like I heard the other day, people have like this emergency account insurance. Like you, oh. you have a couple hundred. You, you've you've seen that. Like you pay a couple, you know, every month, and like you get like if you lose your job, you have like. And I'm like, what a nightmare! What a waste of time! Like you you know, and it's like, but unfortunately. Those type of insurances, I guess, are needed if you don't have any discipline. But imagine the rate of return on all the insurance premiums that are saved by not ha- like by quote unquote self-insuring. And what you're doing is you're building your opportunity fund to invest yeah. or to take advantage of opportunity. So I love that you that you articulated that, and hopefully people re-listen to that. So it's not just me saying it, but it's a uh, <laughs> someone that's been around the block a few more times. You get I get people at the risk of making this just a little bit longer, Caleb. Let me yeah. give your listeners one more thing, or your viewers one more thing. And that is this, you need to, you need to think about your insurances differently because what I usually see is people have insurances and I ask them why they have that one. They say it's inexpensive. And when insurances are expensive, the term I hear people say is this insurance company is ripping me off. Maybe they are because it's square peg round hole because it's generally the salesperson, but the insurance itself usually is not insurances are state regulated. They, maybe you can fool a state regulator for six months for a year but you're not going to fool them long-term and it's highly competitive. So I don't think the insurance policy is where you're messing up. It's your application of these things. So insurance companies know one thing really well, they know risk to the company. They do not want to get in trouble and neither do you. So you have to think about insurance this way, which is totally different than most people think about it. Insurances that cost the most money. This is, this is going to sound horrible, you don't need to buy those insurances, but you need to consider that risk. So disability insurance, which so many people don't want anything to do with, like, oh, that's expensive insurance. You know why it's expensive? It's expensive because their claims are through the roof. It's a better chance of happening to you. You think about your car versus your home, right? Your, your home hopefully costs more than your car, but your car insurance is more expensive. Why is that? It's because the claims experience is bigger there. So think about things like disability Think about your car insurance more for your home. And don't get me wrong, you should have good homeowner's insurance anyway. But but think about those more expensive ones. And I'll tell you one that a lot of people have through work that you can most of us safely get rid of. A lot of people listening to this sit and work at a keyboard all day. And yet on your flex benefits at work, you have accidental death and dismemberment insurance. Accidental death and dismemberment insurance is meant to provide you income if you lose a finger in heavy equipment. If, if, if my index finger pops off between the J and the K key, <laughs> like there's, there's probably something wrong there. So you can usually get rid of accidental death and dismemberment and instead get that disability coverage that you were avoiding. So sometimes by just moving your, your coverages around and how you do it, yeah. you might not save any money, but you'll have much yeah. better coverage for the same amount of money. And that's what we talk about in that section. So, so many more things that I want to say. I'm, I'm glad you talked, talk, touched on the DI because it is a tough thing to have a conversation because it's, I mean, sometimes two to 3% of your income, you're insuring so about painful. 50 to 60%. It's something that you like, you don't want to do, but statistics don't lie. So it's like, it is interesting because we give people the option. We show them 
Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of lawsuits happening because financial advisors aren't having that conversation because it's a, it's a, not a fun conversation. And yet if I talked about it as income insurance, insuring a fraction, right. it would, it would be a lot different than like, I'm not going to get disabled. So it's just, it's just interesting how th- things are worded. And, yeah. and unfortunately, if you, you know, advisors are going to do the least friction to, you know, I, I love our financial financial advisor friends, but it is kind of comical how um, we th- you think we're experts and we're really really just maybe one step ahead or, or say we're one step ahead of you. Um, and this else is the you- place where you can save a lot of money. By the yes, way, I mean I, you save a lot of money and save and have a lot more freedom of worry if you stop asking the question about insurance and start asking the question about where's my risk. Yep, yeah. I love that. All right, part four. Let's let's land the plane. What what um. And th- there's a lot here. So what yeah. what else is from a standpoint of like when it, when it comes to, you know, the end of the book, what are some of the other key yeah. elements here? The big thing here is hire is hiring advisors, which we already talked about that. That's a major chapter. But another one is people that are very, very smart are incredibly smart. And this is what, what drove me crazy when I moved from the advising world to the financial media world, Caleb, was they're having, as you know, also straddling both sides of this, they're having two totally different conversations, right? And financial advisors are having conversations about building an investment policy statement, which I think is really important, especially in times like with what says we're recording this, all the problems in Ukraine. And don't get me wrong, the last thing we want to worry about is our money, but we still should be worried about our money, right? On top of all that, there's definitely other things that are more important. So I want to acknowledge that. But as we're recording this, the stock market yesterday, last I looked, was down 600, you know, it was down 600, the Dow Jones was um, at one point in the day. So when we see volatility and stuff, people panic, but professionals have an investment policy statement, which means they build a machine about how they're going to react to things and they stop reacting based on the news cycle, which is designed to make you panic so that you read more or watch more. So, so stop that. The second thing is, is that people that are super smart stop at one fund, and this isn't going to be your whole audience, and maybe I'm only talking to the nerds now, but there's a lot of nerds out there that go, well, you know what? I'm going to buy the total stock market index, and that's it. I'm just going to buy this one fund called VTSAX, and I'm going to stop. And by the way, that's a fine place to start. It's great. But at some point, there's this thing that we go into late in the book called the efficient frontier. And I'm not a fan of that name. I'm not a fan of the fact that we use some of these big terms for stuff that isn't that hard to get and isn't that hard to do. But there's a, historically, your assets could be positioned so that they take the least risk with the highest return based, historically now, based on, and this is Nobel Prize stuff. This is Dr. Harry Markowitz did this, won a Nobel Prize for this. uh, And so many people have followed this, this advice. And it frustrates me when somebody who makes sure that they save every penny that they do all of this highly analytical stuff when it comes to their investment, they go, I'm just going to buy the total stock market index and I'm going to stop there. When the efficient frontier is so easy and people will, people will avoid fees, avoid fees and fees and fees and fees and fees. And yet they'll give away tons and tons and tons of money by having it positioned inefficiently. So just, even if you don't buy the book, look up the efficient frontier and, 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 and start to learn about that. Cause it, it, I hate the name. It's so much easier than that. Caleb, as you know, it's it's not it's not the theory that you came up with uh, in your mom's basement. Uh, like, <laughs> I did like, man, like this is okay. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree with that. I I think fees there people are triggered and 
rightfully so. But at the end of the day, you should be asking, what is the end result? I'll pay yes. you a 5% fee if you can give me X, Y, or Z result. And it just, it, not that I'm endorsing a 5% fee, I'm, I'm saying like, let's be more critical thinker. Let's not sure. think that value comes from the lowest fee. And, and if you're just going to invest in the S&P, uh, don't pay someone 2% to do that. Like, it's just one of those things where I, I love how you articulated that for sure. My, my uh, co-host says it really well. He's like, in your fights, there's lots of dragons to fight. Yep. The financial media talks about fees as number one, and it's an important dragon, but it's probably three or four. Yep. He says this better than I do. He's like, I've never met somebody. He's been a financial planner for over 20 years. He says, he's like, I've never met somebody who during retirement goes, you know, I would have retired earlier if I would have paid half a percent less in fees. Yeah. Later on, it's, I didn't save early enough. I didn't save enough money. That's why you don't retire. So solve those things first. So how can people get the book? And yes, and I know that you, and I want you to replug how people can be a part of the tour. Cause we're going to, we're going to air this as soon as possible, just so that we get the most exposure. Cool. Thanks man. Tour. Yeah. Stackingbenjamins.com slash stack shows you all the different places. Obviously you can get it on the big boys like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and they are fine people. Barnes and Noble's partnering with us in some cities. We'll be at Barnes and Noble's in Columbus, probably Manhattan. We're, we're, we're hopefully firming that up today or tomorrow, but we're in, we're at a few Barnes and Nobles around the country. But generally, I, at the risk of peeving Barnes & Noble, I really like the little community bookstores like where I started this, a place like Powell's. And because these places are great places for creators to get inspiration. So if you can buy from your local bookstore, even though it might cost a couple dollars more, I, I would do that over Amazon all day long. And you know what? If you're listening to this and you're just starting your journey and you're listening to, to Caleb, number one, congrats. That's amazing. Number two, don't buy my book go to the library and get it or, or use your library system to listen to the audible. You won't be able to dog ear it like my brother and I did our Hardy boys detective manual, but here's what you do. Read the first section on stacking your first Benjamins, then use part of that Benjamin to then buy the book. And then you can start Xing it out and cutting out your badges and doing all the fun stuff later. I love it, man. I, I love it. Um, do you mind if I ask you one more question? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, if, if this is your last day on earth and you're with the people that you love the most and you can't give them your book, you can't give them oh, any, come on. your podcast, you can't give them any of that. You just have one last conversation. What is that conversation going to consist of? If, if, oh my goodness. You're gonna make me cry. Like seriously, like I welled up. It's funny because it's the, look at me. It's, it's the, uh, it's actually where I think my next book is going. Because it really, you know, while this book is fun and campy, there's a much more serious thing going on that like we've talked about today under the hood, right? This very serious stuff. And we lighten up the conversation so that we have this, this seriousness. But I feel like the more, if I, as I look back on my 54 years here, I think about the more gratitude I have, the more wealth I have. And I know there's people listening to this that are like, I'm in a really crappy place. How do I have gratitude? Like really, how do I have gratitude? But, but I think there's always something. There's one thing. And sometimes we don't want to look at that. It's right in front of us. But, but just the fact that we're here, we can have gratitude. Like, you know, we did this guy, Ken Honda on, on our show. Uh, and he uses a very Eastern philosophy. And he's like, when you owe a bunch of people money, have gratitude that they trust you to pay them back. Like, how awesome is that? Like, what a great viewpoint. So, and I do, I feel like the more gratitude I have, I don't worry about money, not because I have boatloads of money. I'm doing, I'm doing great. 
I, I don't need to work. But that that's not why I feel like I have wealth, Caleb. I feel like I have wealth because of the fact that I have these people around me that if I need something, that they will come help me. So I would say thank you. That, that's what I do in that, in that last conversation. I'm 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 honored for the authenticity and the tears and also the like deep deep gratitude that you have. Um, it's very very clear that you are extremely bund- abundant, and it's a it's a breath of fresh air because you look at other people and instead of saying oh they're going to take away from what I'm building, you're like hey how can I give of myself so that you can use me as a stepping stool, and that really does come from a heart of gratitude. There's no doubt the reason why we're friends is like that is a core value of mine as well. And it's just, it's a better way to live. And so with that, thank you for making, uh, taking time to be on here. Uh, thank you for, um, yeah, thank you for putting this, this work in a book that is, can be impactful even when you, when you're not here. And uh, I look forward to future podcast conversations and giving you a hug in person next time we see each other. Let's do it, man. Thanks for making me cry. Jerk. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.